0: Uh, I wonder if you could uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 John uh, chapter 4. Okay, um, for those of you who are really awake today, you may have noticed that Dave Webster preached on 1 John 1 and 2 last week, and I'm doing chapter 4 now, which means there's a missing chapter. Um, We had to reorder the preaching schedule um, just to free up Pete and Kim to do some apostolic stuff, so uh, 1 John 3 will will happen, I promise you, but it's going to happen after this talk. I just want to kind of give us a headline text, which is 1 John 4 uh, and verse 7. It goes like this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Well, we managed to clear January safely. Here here we all are. We survived. Um, And uh, it was only a month ago or so that we were sat around our uh, tables for Christmas dinner. And in our house, we have this kind of tradition, which is when we buy crackers, uh, we don't buy the expensive ones. Okay, that's not because we're tight or hard up, but to be honest with you, if I want a pair of nail clippers, I will go to boots. Um, we like the cheap ones because the gifts are of a special quality. And uh, this year, as we were uh, 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 kind of snapping the crackers, uh, Leah, my daughter, she got the little red fish. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh, yeah. you know what I'm saying. So uh, we got the fish out, and uh, if, you, if you've never seen one of these before, it's like a little cellophane fish, and you put it on the palm of your hand, and it responds to the t- the heat of your hand and how it responds gives you an indicator of what kind of lover you are okay <clears throat> so like if it doesn't move then you're just flatlining um you know if if you're uh, mildly romantic like the head and the tail might kind of curl a little bit um if if you like a passionate hot stuff it would just be break dancing on your hands um, there is one move i think it twists long ways and that's you, you're fickle Um, so, but I just remember those things as a kid. They were really great fun. And whenever we got them with our crackers, we'd always make sure that granny got a go. (laughs) Because there's nothing like a 76 year old woman dressed in a cardi, twin set and pearls. Who's red hot and passionate. (laughs) It's just like, Hey, granny, come on. So, um, I, I want to kind of bounce off of that and ask you a question, which is in your spiritual life if we put the red cellophane fish on your hand, what kind of lover are you? What kind of lover are you? Now, over the years, I've been really fascinated by um, the different ways in which people try to articulate love or demonstrate love or decide what love is or love isn't. And um, there was a long period of time where, you ready? Here comes a confession. I would read the Lonely Hearts columns. Okay. <laughs> Not because I was looking for something, but I was just intensely fascinated by what are people after. And what I've discovered recently is annually they produce a book with all the best ones in. So um, this morning I thought I would start off by sharing three of them with you that just really had me laughing. Okay. Um, So the first one is, list your ten favourite albums. I just want to know if there's anything worth keeping when we finally break up. Uh, that's from a practical, forward-thinking man at age 35. Um, this second one I quite like as well, uh, which is, Ploughing the Loneliest Furrow, 19 personal ads and counting, only one reply. And that was my mother telling me not to forget bread on the way home from BQ. Man, 51. And then the clincher for me, short and sweet, is this, Romance is dead, so is my mother, man with inheritance, 42. <laughs> <Come> on. <laughs> makes me kind of think if i was playing that game what would i be writing but anyway so there's these people who there like this is what i'm looking for but it the mind boggles the mind boggles when it comes to love okay so i want to show you this um in december 2005 there was a lady called sharon tendler she was a 41 year old eccentric british millionaire and she married the love of her life a dolphin um, the thrilled bride, wearing a white dress, walked down the dock before hundreds of astounded visitors and kneeled down before the groom, who was waiting in the water. Escorted by his fellow best men dolphins, they'd swam over. And uh, when Tendler got there, she hugged him, whispered sweet nothings in his, I don't know, blowhole, um, and, <laughs> kissed him, and kissed him in front of the cheering crowd. Okay, And it then says this, After the ceremony was sealed with some mackerel... <laughs> Um, Tendler was tossed into the water by her friends so she could swim with the love of her life. Okay, so it, you think that's bizarre? Do you want to go deeper? Okay, yeah, here we go. The Telegraph in 2007 ran a feature on an American man called Edward Smith who admitted having sex with a thousand cars. Not having sex in a thousand cars, having sex with a thousand cars. And he said in his own words, I'm a romantic. I wrote poetry about cars. I sing to them. And I talk to them just like a girlfriend. In fact, Smith, who currently lives with a girlfriend, a white Volkswagen Beetle named Vanilla, insisted that he was not strange or sick and had no desire to change his ways. But as well as Vanilla, he regularly spends time with his other vehicles. A 1973 Opal named Cinnamon and a 1993 Ford Ranger named Ginger. So here's the thing, right? The great cry of John's letter is this. God is love. And here's what the world has done. It's flipped it and it said, love is God. And the reality is, it doesn't matter who you love, or in Edward Smith's case, what you love, Or even how you love. As long as you call it love, then no one is allowed to comment, question or challenge its validity. You know, when the aged Apostle John became so weak that he could no longer preach, they would literally carry him into the congregational meeting in the church in Ephesus on a bed. And they would lay him down and he would just give them a word of exhortation. And repeatedly he would just say to them, Little children, love one another. That would be it. Little children, love one another. But every time he was carried in, he would say that. And when his hearers grew tired of hearing the same exhortation all the time, they asked him why he kept repeating the same words so frequently. And his reply was simply this. Because it is the Lord's command. And if it's all you do, it is enough. You know, I I studied this book for three years to uh, BA level. That means I officially have an ology. And I am dumbfounded by the lengths and depths we go to to make this complicated and inaccessible. And the heart of the matter is, when you boil this book down, is love one another. Because if that's all you can do, it is enough. And so chapter four has been classed as the throne room of this letter. And actually, the throne itself is verse eight, where it just simply says, God is love. But this is not the apostles' equivalent of John and Yoko's loving. If you remember that in the 1970s, they stripped off, sat in bed for two weeks and said, come on, let's give peace a chance. This is not John's equivalent of that, because the content of this letter is profoundly related to the context and I want to kind of break the context down a bit because I think if you understand the context it will be much more meaningful for us so there are three people kind of listed in this story there's a bunch of people called we and that's the apostles right at the beginning of the letter John says you know we saw him who was from the beginning we saw him we looked upon him We touched him, we were around him, we were near him. All that stuff he did, the amazing heaven stuff, we were there. That's the apostolic witness. Then there's a second group of people, which is the you. Now the you of this book is the second generation Christians. This book is kind of being written about 85 to 95 AD. These are the Christians who have believed because of that first wave who came through after Jesus. And we know they're kind of that second wave because John himself calls them my little children. Isn't that nice? And there's this bond between them. We saw Jesus. We heard Jesus. We touched Jesus. And he was from the beginning. And we have kind of passed that message, that, that call onto you. And you've believed it. And you've done it. And it's fantastic. But the problem is, they're not the only people in this relationship. There's a bunch of people that the letter calls them. The them are called false prophets, or antichrists, or liars, or people who are of the world. And the them of this story have messed up the relationship between the we and the you of this story. Because they've come in, spouting a whole load of lies pretending they have some kind of authority to speak about what Jesus is like and what Jesus requires. And I think it's really important for us. I'm so glad there's so many of us here this morning because I want to flag this up. The challenges facing this church were really simple. On one hand, these people that we call the them of the story were challenging apostolic authority. We've got these people who saw Jesus, touched him, worked alongside him, were, were modeled in his likeness. And then these people come and say, oh, no, 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 no. Jesus wasn't like that. Jesus didn't do that. Does, does that make sense? And so that's the first thing that's attacked is apostolic authority. The second thing that is attacked is the nature of Christ himself. They're having a go and they're kind of saying, well, yeah, you think he was this, but actually he was just a man really now why is that so important for us well I promise you if Christianity is going to be attacked in any ways at all the first way will be an attack on this the apostolic witness I have an incredibly high view of scripture and it has never let me down in fact the more I try and tear it apart and find weaknesses within it the more I am convicted and convinced that you can go to the bank on this thing. But not only is the apostolic authority or the high view of scripture under attack, it's the nature of Christ himself. You see, what these people, the them in this story were saying was, it's, it's actually Jesus plus the secret knowledge. It's really dangerous that. You know, for us as Christians, we're 2,000 years down the line. Do you ever get one of those moments you're reading the Bible and you think, wow, no one's ever spotted this before. I've had this revelation. No, 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 no. I I just want to say something. This is the revelation. What you had was illumination. In a moment, God's Holy Spirit went ding and just shone the torch on that passage. You've read a million times. And you've seen it in a way you've never seen it before because his... Spirit is on it. And it's like something's been uncovered, but actually it's been there all the time. And so for them, they had this view of Christ and it was simply, well, you had to have Jesus plus the special knowledge. And here's the truth. Anytime you have the cross plus something, it always equals Jesus minus something. It means Jesus isn't enough. And, and if you take no other message home today, folks, I want you to hear this. Jesus is enough. He is everything you could want him to be. He did everything you need him to do. And in the future, he is everything you could ever want. Cool, hey? And so the letter was written kind of with a fourfold purpose. It was to reinforce or reestablish apostolic authority. It was to reaffirm the incarnation of God, God coming in flesh, God with skin on, God live in concert, which is found uniquely and only in Jesus Christ. But thirdly, it's there to flush out the wolves, because there's these people running around saying all these strange things. No, 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 God didn't come in the flesh. No, 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 these apostles aren't really the real deal. And so John writes into this letter a number of things that are kind of indicators to help us spot wolves. Can you say Jesus is from God and he came in the flesh? If you can, that's from the Spirit of God. And if that's true, then you're probably going to live a life that's full of light, not dark. And if that's true also, you're probably going to live in a way like he did, which probably means you're going to love. And all of those things melded together is the way we flush out wolves. Wolves do not walk in the light. Wolves do not love, and wolves do not receive Jesus for who he is on Jesus' terms. Does that make sense? And so that's the kind of background of the letter, but there was something particularly unique that was um, a bit of a pain uh, for these guys. And the problem was this, that these people who were into... Well, we call it Gnosticism, but it was probably, which was a heresy in the second century, but it was brewing at this time. They had this kind of belief that all matter was evil. So that means this thing, our body, is evil. And what's good is spirit. And that caused some kind of uh, knock-on problems. One of those problems was that for them, salvation was about escaping your body or escaping planet Earth. That sounds exactly like the gospel we have preached in the West for the last 500 years. This is all bad. The world, evil. I can't wait to get out of here and get to heaven where it's all going to be lovely and fine. All this body of sin I'm in, all this body of death I'm in, all this body of sickness. I just can't wait to get out of here and get there. Except that's not the message of God. The message of God is actually the other way around. God sees the mess. He understands the pain. He understands the severity of the fracture. And so what does he do? He invades it, both the planet and people, and transforms them from the inside out. That is the kingdom of God, folks. If you have bought into any kind of gospel that says, I have the golden ticket, I get to go to heaven one day and you stick it in your back pocket and then sit on your blessed assurance waiting for the first plane out of here. That is not the gospel. The gospel is God so loved you. He wants to invade your life now and start heaven here. Here. That is the heart of the gospel. And they had these other crazy things. like They really believe that kind of after Jesus' baptism... Between birth and baptism, he was just a man. And after his baptism, the divine Christ somehow came and filled him. And so all the clever stuff he did in the middle of the story, that's what happened then. And then the divine Christ leaves the body of Christ, so he's just a man again. And it's just the man who dies on the cross. So you notice, at baptism where he identifies with sinners, it's because his body's evil. And on the cross where he dies for sinners, well, it's because his body's evil. They they fracture The nature of Christ. And they want to do the same with us. And the way they do it is simply this. Sin is not breaking law. Sin is the fact that your body is evil. Doesn't matter what you do in your body. Because it's already evil. And it gave them license to behave how they wanted. And so the central message that, that John is bringing to this church is simply this. That Jesus is a man infused who is fully god as well fully man fully god and his point is if you understand that and if you receive him as that there's this beautiful reciprocal relationship that says you abide in him he abides in you you abide in him he abides in you you abide, you get the picture but if that's true and you do abide in him and he does abide in you that is going to show up and it's going to show up like this you're going to live like you're in the light Now, it doesn't mean you're going to be sinless. But the general thrust and direction of your life is going to be light. He actually says, you know, if you, say, if you say you're without sin, you're deluded. And if you do sin, it's okay. We have the best lawyer in town. His name is Jesus. He's a great advocate. He gets everybody off whose case he fights. How cool is that? Light walk as light he says you're not going to have sinless perfection in fact there's this beautiful story where um, Charles Spurgeon was preaching on this very topic and uh, this guy came up to him at the end of the meeting and said sir I do believe I have achieved sinless perfection and so Spurgeon just picked up his glass of water and threw it in his face and the man was like <laughs> and out came the real hymn and Spurgeon said, I think you have a way to go, sir. <laughs> so if you want to have that debate with me afterwards, feel free. Uh, <laughs> and so John gives a command. Verse 7, let us love one another. And he explains the prime mover for that command. Because love is from God not only that he lays out the reason he says this if God so loved us we also ought to love what's he saying he's saying this folks he's saying it is totally inconsistent for you to step into light and love and receive all the glory and riches of heaven because of his love and then not allow that love to flow through you to other people Do you feel the weight of that? Like, I I really struggled putting this message together because I got to the bit about, well, he loved us, so let us love other people. Duh. Like, I felt at this point, my sermon's done. Should we have coffee? (laughs) No, because there's so much more going on. The question is, what is love? I mean, how do you define what love is? Who has the right to define it? Should we allow the people who write the Lonely Hearts columns to set the terms and conditions of what love is? I mean, one of these ads I read said, um, basically, uh, sorry, my my mic's come off now. Uh, One of these ads I read said, you know, basically, I'm very angry. And I'm looking for somebody with bulbous eyes and a purple vein in their forehead that throbs so we can stand together in the potting shed and utter primal scream at our anger. I hope that wasn't somebody from the potting shed connect group. I just... <laughs> what, what actually goes... You're not doing that, are you? No, no, okay. They're just talking about carrots and stuff. That's okay. Um... But who gets the right to define the parameters and the terms and the conditions? Is it the Lonely Hearts guys? Is it... Sharon Tendler with her dolphin husband. Is that Edward Smith? Who gets to call that one? God. Alone. And what comes next is why I've entitled this morning, Dirty Love. You see, verse 9 says this. In this, the love of God was made manifest amongst us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we may live through him. In this... The love of God was made manifest. So in this action, we have a definition of what love is. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And then it goes on in verse 10 to say, in this is love. Not that we love; have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. There it is, folks. Right there. You want to know what love is? It's in those two verses. And it's deeply profound. And it's that reason that I call this dirty love. You see, in the first instance, verse 9, we're talking about dirty love because it's love by immersion. God sent his son into the world. You know, there's an old Hebrew Um, way of interpreting scripture and it's this whenever you stumble across a word in this instance the word love if you want to know its true meaning you have to go back to the very very first time it's used we call it the principle of first appearance and in this case the first appearance of the word love is nothing to do with a man and a woman who romantically are inclined it's actually a father and his son Abraham Take your only son who you love. Interesting. Because we know what God asked Abraham to do. Take the most precious thing you have and be willing to offer it. See, heaven's rescue party meant the pure, spotless, Holy one of heaven, entered into human experience to rescue us and to return us to our identity and our calling in this universe. Do you understand how profound that is? That is the beauty and majesty of the Christmas story, which we've just been focusing on. The problem is we in the West have taken that story and we've cleaned it up. Mary and Joseph have this beautiful new built barn, lovely wooden timbers, perfectly sanded, lovely roof. There's beautiful clean golden straw scattered on the floor. And there's this beautiful little wooden manger. It looks like something you might buy in mother care actually when you're having a baby. <laughs> and it's all just, it's, oh, it's so sweet. So in June this year, I had the privilege of standing in a cave in Bethlehem. Most of the people in Bethlehem lived in caves. It's a very hilly part. The central hill country of, <clears throat> of Israel. And there's all of these caves. And people literally lived in these caves. And they carved out the backs of them and made bedrooms and all sorts of stuff. And the reality is, if you go to one of these caves at the time of Jesus, they would have been about five inches deep in sheep crap. I use that word advisedly. We'll come back to it. The ceiling would have had about three inches of soot from hundreds of years of oil lamps just being burnt. And the manger isn't some lovely mother care cot. It's a stone slab which has been hollowed out so animals can drink water. A manger is not about straw. It's about water. And that's where the king of the universe shows up. He literally enters the filth of this world. So there can be an exchange between him and us. It is dirty, gritty, grimy love. It says that God sent his son into the world. Now we tend to think of the world as in, you know, planet earth. Or the sum of the nations. But in scripture when that word cosmos is used by John. It always means one thing. And it's the kind of... Um, Systemic aggregate of all the individual sinful lives that are at enmity with God. Pure, perfect, holy Christ descends into an excrement stained cave. Into a world which systemically is wired against himself. That's love. You know, uh, when I got married, I was like um, all young men who've never worn a ring before. I played with my ring a lot. And um, on my very wedding night, we had departed from the reception. We'd driven to the place we were going to spend the first night on honeymoon. And I was twiddling my ring all all the way through the car journey. Anne was driving, and it fell off in the car. And there I am at 9.30 at night, on my hands and knees, with my head in the footwell of the car, trying to find this blessed ring. Because you see, after the Bible and Anne, at that point in time, this is the most precious thing I have. The most precious thing, because everything it symbolizes. And uh, we then took up residence in our new house, and uh, we had two cars. So we had one on the drive and one in the road. And the one on the road, if you pulled up from the direction you came into our street, the driver's door was always over a drain in, in the road, you see. And I was always really nervous of either A, dropping my keys... Or actually, because I still, to this day, fiddle with my wedding ring, dropping my ring. But I promise you this. If that ring had gone down that drain, I would have been straight in the garage, pulled out my crowbar, lifted the lid on that drain. I would have pulled my shirt sleeve up, and my hand would be elbow deep in crud to find that precious thing that I value. That's the definition of love, folks. That's what he did for us. Love is diving headfirst into crap to rescue the thing that is most precious to you. It's what he did for you, and it's what he did for me. That is love. Dirty love by association is the second thing. It says in verse 10, he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, that's old English language. I think some of your Bibles might say to to die as an atonement for our sins. But I want to stick with the word propitiation for a very important reason. Propitiation is the satisfaction of wrath or God's just holy anger at sin. See, in the ancient world with the Hebrews, they had a number of religious feasts and festivals and one of them was called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, the priest would take two goats. One of them would be declared for God and one of them would be called To be sent away. That's its name, to be sent away. And the one that was for God, the priest would lay his hands on the head of that goat and he would speak all the sins of Israel over that goat. They'd then kill it and its blood would be shed and thrown against the Ark of the Covenant, the thing that symbolized the very presence of God on earth. The other goat, who's called sent away, was literally prayed over again in the same way the priest would lay his hands on the head and declare the sins of the nation over it and it would then be driven out of town now by the time of jesus this was a very elaborate thing they did they had all these feeding stations along the way where the person taking the goat would be offered a drink and he'd be like no no no, i have an important task and they would take the goat down the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, over the other side, and you drop down into the Dead Sea, and there's a big cliff there. And they literally boot this goat off the edge, so it would break its legs as it rolled down the hill. The point being, it's never coming back. And that's what this word means. Of those two goats, propitiation is the goat that is slaughtered to appease God's wrath. The other goat is called the goat of expiation. That takes away the thing that caused the sin. So that's the picture. On the Day of Atonement, one goat deals with the wrath. The other goat deals with the thing that caused the wrath. It takes the thing away. Isn't that a cool picture? Now... Some of you know I like a bit of guerrilla preaching and do some kind of funky stuff up here, you know, and uh, using props and things. So I did speak to Cheryl Taylor about whether we could borrow one of her goats um, this morning. Um, But apparently to transit livestock, you need all sorts of um, certification. So I'm just going to have to leave you with the mental picture. Um, I just wanted to have a goat up here. But here's the thing, right? When the priest lay his hands on those goats, apparently the... The trauma of speaking that much sin over the animal meant the priest had to turn his head away. It was such a terrible thing. Now, I want to flip forward thousands of years to the time of Jesus. You see, we're told in this very same letter of John that God is light. Yeah? What happens when Jesus is crucified? It goes dark. Why do you think that is? It's because as the sin of mankind is laid on Jesus, God turns his head away. That's what love is like, folks. It's dirty by immersion and it's dirty by association. It's filthy, it's messy, it's grimy business. But here's what I want to say. If it was good enough for him. It's good enough for us. These are the words of Jesus in Matthew 10, 24 and 25. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher. Let us love. Because love is from God. And God sent his son into this fallen and fractured, and filthy, broken world. And then took upon himself all of the things that made it filthy and fractured and broken. So in place of that, we could receive his glory. Do you understand how profound love is? And then we get this really painful test. Anyone who does not love, verse eight, does not know God. So here's a question, folks. How's the love life going? How's the love life? Because I want to be honest with you, it's really easy to be friendly with people you get on with and to agree with them about things you agree about. And that can look like love, but it's merely agreement. Real love shows up when you're going to get dirty and grimy by immersing yourself in somebody else's crap and mess and carnage. And real love is going to look like love when some of that, by association, covers you. I love the fact that, you know, Jesus was immersed in the world of publicans and tax collectors and prostitutes and women who had just been dragged out of the bed of adultery and drunkards and so on. And yet he coexisted so beautifully with them that he was fully God in every single moment. And yet they were fully sinful and not one of them was left feeling condemned. Yet every single one of them knew that the door to light and life in increase had just been opened in front of them. That is the challenge of love. And I want to say to you, can you love like that? Can you turn up full of heaven and be in the midst of stuff that is abhorrent, both in practice and in ideology? And be present in such a way that you can be so full of God and they can still be fully sinful. Yet rather than left feeling condemned, they just see a beautiful door opened to the kindness and the goodness of God. Can we do that? Some of you know my favorite story in the whole Of all the Gospels is the woman caught in adultery. And I love this thing where the big question is, Jesus, should we stone her? And Jesus says, yes, you should. Go ahead. If you're perfect. That's the first time we hear these words in the Bible. (laughs) Go ahead. And they leave. And then he says these amazing words. I do not condemn you. The one person who is perfect says, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, I would like to suggest to you that over the last 500 years, the church has managed to somehow flip that message. And so our message has been, if you don't sin anymore, we will not condemn you. And I want to suggest to you today that maybe standing on street corners, angrily shouting the ugly passages from scripture, is not a very effective or biblical way to reach those who are trapped neck deep in the mar of their own sin and chaos. I love the fact in Matthew 18 where Jesus is teaching us how to deal with people we disagree with or who've offended us, go and show them their sin. If they won't listen, take someone else along. If they won't listen, take a group along, bring it before the church. And if they won't listen still, treat them as you would a tax collector, a Gentile, or a sinner. And we go, yeah, kick them out. kill them, Except, how did Jesus treat tax collectors, <laughs> sinners, and Gentiles? And it breaks my heart that passages like that have been used to nail people to the floor. If they don't respond, and they're meant to be in Christian community, and they don't respond to all of those stages, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, go with them like they don't know the gospel. Go with them, go to them with the love of God. And let it ooze out of you until they realize their need of a savior. And once they have that, and they say, well, well if you're in the savior, this is what it means. We are accountable to one another. We love one another. We engage with each other's rubbish. Sometimes we get covered in it. But that's what love Does. So I want to wrap up with these words and thoughts. There's something incredibly powerful about a community of people who practice love. I'm not talking about the hippie free love of the 60s nor the kind of selfish sexual love that preoccupies the world of today, but I mean a radical demonstration. Of the love of God. You see, our world is outrageously promiscuous with its body and incredibly stingy with its heart. And I honestly believe for us today, God is saying, I want you to be incredibly stingy with your bodies. Your body is for one person. But your hearts, I want you to be liberal. I want you to give them. I want you to drop into someone else's chaos and darkness and bring light. I want you to step in, even if that means you get covered in their crud. Because that's what the love of God looks like. And there's this beautiful verse. You ready for this? This is a killer. By this is love perfected with us as he is so also are we in the world that's how you know when God's love's perfected in you that's what the world's waiting to see is a church that really represents the rabbi they claim to follow i believe we're a great way on that journey folks but I really believe the call to love is more radical than we perhaps ever realized. Let's stand and pray together. You just put your hand on your heart. God, I've got to be honest, these words look so simple on the printed page that you are love and we are to love because love comes from you. As we just begin to scratch the surface of what you've done for us, how you dived into a fallen and broken world and got covered in its filth. God, that's the call for us. And I pray that you would give us the courage to love like that. I pray you'd give us the courage to to give, to love and not count the cost. And God, on those days when it looks scary to love like that, I just want to ask you to remind us once again that we are filled with the very resources of heaven. The very same spirit who enabled you to love that way. Who was present throughout your whole life when you identified with sinners at baptism and when you died. On their behalf at the cross, that very same spirit not only is in us, but overshadows us and walks with us and covers us and leads us and grows us to become more like you. I just want to ask you guys to open your arms and your hearts to him now because he wants to give you a fresh download of the reality of his love. Thank you, Jesus, for your love. Thank you, Jesus, for your love. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And all God's people said. Amen. Amen. May it go well with you. And I, I really pray that. I just pray we can really engage with this. People felt loved when Jesus was with them. Let's try and do likewise. Merci. Merci.